ahead and pray and we will dig in. Jesus, uh, this is, you know, this is the, the wrapping up uh, teaching for the church series we've been doing. And it's, it's uh, just a good reminder um, for all of us of how passionate you are about uh, the church, your bride. Um, and, and I pray that your spirit would just teach us today. Um, give us minds that can just dig deep and labor for the next hour and just um, hear and be taught and be stretched and be um, in submission to your word as the authority of our life. We pray that you would just conform us to you, Lord, uh, and empower us to be like you in all of these areas, God. You're the great motivator uh, when it comes to all of the church uh, activities, God. And so I pray that we would um, just come and run to you and be empowered by you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying in this series that God has saved us out of darkness into the wonderful light. Uh, he's saved us to actually be worshipers, uh, to be a family, to be friends together, to be serving one another, to be generously liberal as givers, to be holy as Jesus is holy. He's saving us to be actually taken care of and protected by leadership and to be um, heralders and preachers of the gospel of redemption to anyone who's never heard it. Uh, this ecclesiology or the study of the church is extremely important. And that's why we've taken uh, nine weeks, 10 weeks counting today, to just dive in and immerse ourselves in the theology of the church. The doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance, Mark Deaver wrote. It is the most visible part of Christian theology. It is vitally connected with every other part. Christ's work is, we know, the church's foundation, and that work continues on in the church. It shows the fullness of the mystery of God in redemption and uh, shows God's redemptive work among the people. Um, every week in the last nine weeks, we've, we've dug into the scriptures. We've went in deep. We've rolled our sleeves up and done some serious work. And each work, we've looked at scriptures, but we never just took a verse that said, you know, hey, do this. All right, I'll do that. You know, and now, now go over here and do this, you know, um, just, you know, self-strength, self-motivation for this, the end of self-glorification. That's, that's just like moralism. One man said that's just like the heart of false religion all across the world. But rather, when we looked at the verses, we, we looked at the whole context of passages. We looked at what's called the redemptive indicatives, all right, or the things that show us the glory of salvation and being saved. And whenever we look at those beautiful indicators of salvation in the Bible, it, it leads us and it moves us and it pushes us to work things out. We respond to God's grace, to God's salvation. As Spurgeon says that, that wherever God's grace is preached, uh, a goodly train of works follows after. And so what we do is we've looked at scriptures, we've looked at God's salvation and his plan and his sacrifice and his model and his example and his enabling power to be all that he wants us to be. 
Um, as Mark Deaver wrote, the church arises from this good news of the gospel. And wherever we are distorted as a church, uh, it's probably because we've had a faulty, distorted view of the good news in all of its entirety. Um, one man said, you show your depths of understanding the gospel by your involvement in the local church. It's a gross immaturity if you think you can maintain growth as a Christian apart from life together with the people of God in the church. Uh, Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage and a martyr back in the second century, said this. Uh, he said, no one can have God for his father without having the church for his mother. And then Calvin would expound on that and say, there's no other way to enter into this life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. So in quoting those early church fathers and guys that laid their lives down for Jesus, and as you look at church history, you got guys that actually laid their lives down to protect the church and to protect the people of the church. Uh, they were men who had strong, passionate love, you know, uh, love understandings for the church. And all of that came from Jesus's strong, passionate uh, understanding of the church. The church is at the very center of God's whole plan of his redemptive and eternal purposes. The church wasn't some divine afterthought and, you know, God's like, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great if we had some kind of club and everybody kind of dressed similar and they met like this one day. You know, it wasn't an afterthought of God. It was for, it was foreordained. It's actually part of his attributes, um, all of the things that we've looked at in the last nine weeks. The church is so important that John Calvin said, if we don't prefer the church to all other objects of our interest, then we are unworthy of being counted among her members. Love for the church is something that is distinctly Christian. When we love Jesus and we spend time with Jesus and we have that intimate relationship with Jesus, we're going to begin to love the things he loves. And one of the things that he loved, loves is the church, his church, not the building. We, we, hopefully we've learned to like get the picture of a building out of our mind, but rather the group of people who've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We had a definition during these last nine weeks that we've probably abused and like beat up and like you guys never want to hear it again. But this is the last time for a while that I want to read it. It's, it's kind of a culmination of the New Testament pictures of the church that Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears uh, put together. They, they define the church as a community, the local church, is a community of regenerated believers, people who've been born again, people who are saved who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to the scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and then scatter to fulfill the great commission and be missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. 
So like a nine point definition there of all that God has intended for us to be as his church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, uh, we, we've pulled apart this passage. We've looked at this chapter. We've memorized and grown to love this chapter uh, of Peter, where we're told that we as a church are a chosen generation or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so it's been said, the theologians state, that the redemptive indicatives, the things that show us salvation, always move us towards moral imperatives, things that now we do, it's necessary to do in responding to salvation. And do you see that in this passage? Do you see his good plan of redemption, how we've gone from being aliens and strangers who are far off, now we are a chosen generation? That's good news. I don't know if you know that. Uh, we are a royal priesthood. That means we serve, we like actually like serve the king of kings. Uh, we are a holy nation. We are his own special people. Later on in that verse, it says he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were not a people, but now we're a people of God. We were far off, but now we're not far off. Now we're close. Any good news in there to anybody, right? In, in light of all of that good news, it says that good news is so that you will proclaim his praises, all right? So the good news, the redemptive good news leads us to shouting out his praise in worship and in witness. We pulled that scripture apart probably three different times uh, in this series. But one thing that we see is that the church is very special to Jesus. These titles that are given to us show our radical dignity, our value, our worth as his people, chosen, royal, holy nation, special people. We as a church, not necessarily Calvary Chapel only, but as the universal church of God, uh, we are very valued in the sight of Christ. One thing that we looked at in our first teaching was Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says to Peter that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Something about that verse that's very important is we see the ownership of the church. Who possesses the church? Who has the church? It would be Jesus. He's the one talking there. He's the one who says, it's my church. He possesses it. He owns it. And how did he come to purchase this? How did he come to acquire this church? Well, we see he purchased it or he bought it with a very precious commodity, with a very precious currency, not with gold, not with silver, but with his very own blood. It was his very own blood that shows the value of the church. You know, you know how much something's worth by what you'll pay for it, both in quantity and quality. And certainly he laid down his life, shedding his very own blood to bring this people near to himself. All throughout the New Testament, we see that we were bought at a price. We were purchased with his blood. We were redeemed, not with corruptible things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. He's bought us. We are his. And as you read the book of Revelation, Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's walking in the midst of the churches. 
And he says, man, if you don't want any of me, I'll leave. I'll take the lampstand away from you. Man, it's his church. This is his church. Calvary Chapel is his. And he's the ultimate and final leader and authority in it. All of this shows how valuable and precious and worthy the church is. So that was that teaching on what is the church. Encourage you, if you haven't listened to any of this, go back on our website and listen and download, put it on your iPod, listen to it while you're running or doing deep knee bends or whatever it is that you do, going for long drives and, uh, and, and to get the full context of everything that's taught. Um, but in that, we looked at what should the church be doing? And we kind of divided uh, the, the purpose of the church into three key areas. And we called it uh, upreach, in reach and outreach, all right? Upreach, meaning worshiping the Lord, bringing him glory and praise, everything that he is worthy of. In reach, meaning intentionally loving on each other and serving each other, caring for one another, thinking of one another, being there for one another, coming together with one another. And then finally, outreach to the nations, loving on the nations, making disciples of all the nations. We took the majority of these nine weeks was for this second point, um, uh, in reach. But we see before that, that we're to be worshipers at a church and as a church and our main chief end, our final goal is to glorify God in the way we use our gifts and the way we distribute our resources, no matter what it is, we're to be worshipers. Our church is to uh, be the mirror that reflects the radiance and the beauty and the majesty of our God. And that's what we desire Calvary Chapel of Crook County to be. That passage of 1 Peter that um, we had read a little bit earlier, he says that you might proclaim the praises of him who saved you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That word proclaim means worship. It can also mean witness, but we have been saved so that we might be worshipers, that we might declare his virtues and his excellencies. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible in chapter five, we see the church before the throne of God. They're praying a prayer of redemption, saying to Jesus, you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and uh, people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God. Songs that only the church, the saved, could pray out to the lamb that was slain. And as you see that being the end of of a group of people worshiping before the Lord, giving him glory, Edmund Clowney, who wrote this big, thick book on the church, uh, in, in that book, he says that our reverent corporate worship times together, essentially, they are a picture. They are just a foreshadowing. They are representative here of what's going on in heaven. You know, so if you don't like worshiping God and spending time worshiping God, you're not going to like heaven very much. I hate to break it to you because what we're pretty much going to be doing is not so much like, you know, finding out what it's like to go skydiving or ride a bull or something, you know, we're going to like, I don't know that that's heaven, but, um, we're going to be spending time in intimacy with Jesus. We're going to be glorifying him for what he's done. We're going to be enjoying him. And so what we do on earth as a church, it's just really a foreshadowing of what we're going to be doing in eternity, worshiping God. 
there's a lot of false assumptions on what a healthy church is or, or what a good church is. And a lot of times the integrity of a church is judged by the way worship takes place. But something we glean from Peter is that ultimately a healthy church, a healthy worship service, a service of integrity will have God always as the subject, proclaiming the praises of him and then we'll always have his radical works uh, in line with it. We're, we're praising him who called us out of darkness. We'll be declaring what he has done for us. So the chief end of the church is the same as the chief end of man, bringing glory to God. Later on in our series, we looked at inreach and how in light of all that God has done for us and what he saved us out of and what he saved us towards, we have these beautiful responsibilities and privileges and duties and obligations to our local church and to the people therein. We looked at a lot of different ones and we're going to try to speedily go through them uh, and just be reminded and wrap up and just have some conclusion to these last nine weeks. But one of the first duties that we have uh, as those that have been saved out of darkness is we have a duty to come together regularly as a local church and to be gathered together. It's, it's a duty, yes, but it's a privilege as well. It's something that is joyous to do. From the earliest times, the local church were always congregations of specific identifiable people with specific leadership uh, that were accountable for those people and the people were accountable uh, to that leadership. From the earliest times, whether you're talking about Calvin, whether you're talking about a Roman official named Pliny who wasn't even saved, who talked about these local congregations of Christians that would gather together, or whether you're talking about Justin Martyr, who was a guy that gave his life for Jesus in the second century, then he spoke about um, on the first day of the week, people would gather together, they would read scripture, they would preach, there'd be prayer, and they would collect an offering. So from the very beginning, and if if history isn't good enough, hopefully you should go to what really matters, the scriptures. Or in Acts chapter 2, we see the early church gathering together daily, all right? They would continue steadfastly. They would continue arduously towards being together, studying the apostles' doctrine, being in prayer, taking communion with each other, and sharing with one another. In the whole New Testament, when you look at all the different pictures of what the church is, uh, you see that gathering communal element of what God wants his church to be. Whether that's the flock that has more than one sheep, that's it's like a lot of sheep, right, led by a shepherd, or a body that doesn't just have one part, but has a whole lot of different parts that are joined and knit together and have function and purpose. The New Testament speaks of a temple that has, it's made up of all these different stones and each one of us is a stone. If it was one stone by itself, would it be a temple or would it be a rock in a field? All right. We're not called to be a rock in a field. We're called to be part of this temple, each one of us. New Testament speaks of us being a family. One guy is in a family. A group of people are a family. Um, and so all of the pictures, all of these uh, these uh, metaphors, if you will, uh, speak of our corporate nature as a church and what God has desired us to be. In that, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 tells us that we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but as we're together to exhort one another and be together 
even so much more as the day is approaching. Now, I could just take Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 and be like, now, now, people, quit skipping church, all right? Uh, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But as you look at the whole of chapter 10, we see that we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've been washed, we've been cleansed, and now we get to enter into the holy of holies. There's this beautiful redemption that's taken place. We've been forgiven, we've been brought near. We're not enemies anymore, but we're like friends and brothers and family members, and we get to enter into God's presence. All that being said, the word therefore is used, therefore, dot, 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 Quit neglecting coming together. Salvation leads us and brings us back into community, gathering, being with each other. Why? Well, because God himself is a God of community. In the three people in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these persons, there's distinction yet unity. These guys had each other. God had the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 17, Jesus says, may all of the people be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. God is a God of community. And he desires his church to be that as well. When God created us in the garden, he said, you know what? It's not good that man be alone. I'll make someone there for him. And, and the early church scholars would say, yes, of course, he made Eve as the wife, all right? It's not good for a, a man not to have a wife. Whole different story. But ultimately, he's also getting at, it's not good that man is isolated all by himself. He created Eve as community to have that relationship that they would walk in the garden all together. By design, we've been created for Community. I think that was a husband that just said amen. That's pretty good. Um, but then the fall happened. And we were ripped apart from the Lord. We were we, in our sin. We, we rebelled. We were uh, a big giant middle wall of separation went up between us and God. And, uh, and even between us and others. Uh, there were now fightings and backbitings and murders and all of these great things and wars and bitterness. It all took place because of the fall. And then God sent his son who went great lengths to reconcile us to himself again, to bring us back by the blood of his son. And all of these great lengths taking place, he's reconciled a people back to himself. And so with the good news of that, the gospel, we who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Knowing that, knowing that it's just not me who's been brought near, but that we've been brought near to be together in worshiping and in corporate community, the wrong question to ask is, do I have to be with these people? Do I have to gather together with these people? One preacher said, that's like a mom saying, do I have to hold my kid? Or how many times a day do I have to hold my kid? And we realize that's, that's wrong. Something's wrong in the mind if you're asking that. Instead, we're like, we get to be together. We get to hold each other as often as we can. We get to have camaraderie and fellowship and, and uh, be in the word and be in prayer together and exhort one another. So much happens in those times when we come together. That's not me. That might be me. I don't know where my phone is. <laughs> Someone help me. A lot of times we look during this series at some false understandings of the church. And in this case, with the, with the teaching on the necess necessity to gather, we looked at 
there's some, and, and I can go in there as quickly as another, who would only like to gather when it's convenient for them or would only like to gather when they need to get something, even if that's just, I just need to get filled up today, or only gather for special occasions like Easter or Christmas Eve, and it happens, and it's sinful. And and as we've looked in this series, God has called us not to that, but to regularly, continually, steadfastly gather together as a church. And in the early church, you see Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, they would gather together daily. Another false uh, notion would be that we're coming to this gathering in order to just get, in order to receive. And while that's a beautiful aspect of it, really uh, in, in a lot of the New Testament context, it's what you can contribute to the assembly that is important. Moving right along for the sake of time. The second teaching of this inward aspect of our church relationships is that we would, in our gathering, be considering one another. We would be considerate towards one another. We would be loving towards one another. In that same passage where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right before that he says, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And before he said that, He said, we have boldness now to enter into the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, consider one another. All right, so we just we do it in response to how he considered us. He considered us. He sought after us. He was intentional in the way that he prayed for us even, in the way he laid down his life for us, in the way he knelt down and washed feet and touched lepers and healed people and provided food. There was consideration for others in our savior. And he calls us the church, his representatives, to do the same. It's a responsibility of all Christians. It requires intentional, deliberate, purposeful, meaningful, calculated effort in order to consider each other, our weaknesses, our temptations. I'm aware of this brother's temptation, and I don't want to get him anywhere near what would stumble him. I'm aware of her situation. I'm aware of her sensitivities, what would make her sad and mourn and grieve. And, and, you know, we're aware. I know why she's grieving now, and I'm praying for her. I'm aware, you know, where's her husband? Well, I do know, and I'm praying for him, or I'm praying for his wife. You know, we are aware of each other. We're called to that as a church, to be intentional and deliberate in our consideration towards one another. We have this duty and responsibility to be thinking about each other, you know, and to be calling each other and to be praying for one another. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it goes both ways. Yes, it's a responsibility, but you know what? It's somebody else's responsibility towards you as well. Colossians chapter three, it's this great chapter that says, hey, put off your old man, that old Rory who's so corrupt and he's full of lies and bitterness and hypocrisy and evil speaking and this and that and murderous and bitterness and all this stuff. Put it off and put on the new man 
with all of his new deeds. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If you've got a complaint against one another, then you need to forgive that person like Jesus forgave you. And that's all great. Take off the old man, put on the new. But before Paul even says that, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, hey, you were raised with Christ. Your old man is dead and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members and put on the new man. It's all a response to what he has already done for us. Now, if we're to put off bitterness and lying and wrath towards each other, and we're to be patient and long-suffering and forbearing, and if you've got a complaint against me or I've got a complaint about you, we're to forgive just like Christ forgave us, wouldn't that mean we've got to be around each other? I mean, if it's just me and my cat in my basement, I don't need to forgive anybody but my cat occasionally, you know? Um, I need to be around people in order to bear with them and for, when they offend me, I forgive them, I'm long-suffering, I'm merciful, I'm gracious towards them because I'm around them and you with me. The nature of corporate behavior towards one another means that we've gotta be with one another. So, gathering and considering one another. It's all part of in reach. Not only loving those who love you, but loving those who hate you, loving your enemy. Uh, loving those who are unlovely, those that aren't that pleasant to be around. My mom always called those people sandpaper people because they're always rubbing your raw, you know? Maybe she's gonna be here next week. Don't tell her I said that. Um, but we're to love our enemies. We're to be long-suffering towards one another. Also in the aspect of in reach and intentionally loving on each other, we have the beautiful requirement uh, or responsibility to steward our gifts to whom much is given, much is required. When Jesus gave out the talents, he eventually called those men back to see what they did with those talents. There was accountability for the great gifts that were given to them. A gift in and of itself is synonymous with grace. In fact, Gift means grace. Grace means gift. That's what it means, okay? Now, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, each one of you, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, you've been given at least one gift to be used within this church to display Christ and to build up the people around you and point them towards Jesus, all right? If you're saved, you have a gift and you need to pray at least what that one gift is. Maybe you have more than that. Um, but in that sense, God has not only given you the gift of salvation and an eternal life, but then he's given you the gift of this gift, this spiritual gift. And you read the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. And But we learned from Ephesians chapter 4 especially that each one of us are to use our gift for the edification of the church to build one another up. It's not a bummer to use the gift that you've been given. It's an extreme joy. It's wonderful. And so we encourage you and we have encouraged you to spend some time with Jesus. 
Ask him to reveal to you what gift he's given you. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he wills. And so many Christians are ignorant of what their gift is. It's the very thing that Paul said not to be. He says, don't ignore it and don't be ignorant of your gift. But seek the Lord, find out what it is and how to use it properly and in order within the church context. So faithfully steward the gift that's been given to you. The next session we looked at was the privilege and responsibility of being generous with our financial resources as well with every other resource that God has given us. We looked in depth at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, these radical giving chapters where we see that the Christian is to give according to their ability and beyond their ability. They're to be freely willing. They're to give proportionate to their income. And then even as the Holy Spirit leads beyond their income, they're to be led by the Spirit in their giving. The Christian is to give uh, even to the local church to help support the ministry activities, as well as to help support each other in this inreach uh, function that the church has. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says that we're not to give out of a grudging obligation like we have to give. Uh, we're not to give sparingly, but we're to give eagerly and joyfully for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, did I just lay out on you and vomit out on all of you? Just You guys just give, okay? Just give, just do it. Dig deep, right? In the teaching, we always look at the great giver. We're motivated by the great giver. And Paul, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, takes us back to the great giver. And he says, He who was rich became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And more and more, like now, yes, move, yeah, give like this, give like this, give like Jesus, give like Jesus. And at the end of that giving section, in 2 Corinthians 9, the very last verse, Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So we as the church give within this local congregation liberally and generously and according to our ability and proportionate to our ability with a cheerful heart, not sparingly, but bountifully. Why? Because of the great giver who gave with a cheerful heart, not by compulsion, but eagerly and willingly and bountifully and not sparingly. He's the great and awesome giver. And we're motivated, we're moved. And even beyond that, we're freed to give the way that he gave. And so within the local congregation, we're called to be a part of the support of the ministries that go on here and the support of the people that are here, that there would be no lack, as 2 Corinthians tells us. I'm getting away from my notes, but you kind of have to when you bust nine weeks of sermons into one. All right. You know, it's interesting that in this subject of giving, it's the one place in the Bible that God says, test me in this. He says, test me in this. He, he had said, you know what? You guys are robbing me. And the Israelites would say, what? how are we robbing you, God? And he says, in your tithes and in your offerings, you're robbing me. He says, test me in this. Test me. He says, bring all of your tithes into the storehouse. And he says, and try me in this. 
If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So we've all, and myself included, have been challenged by the Lord in the way that we give. Are we giving out of a worshipful heart? Are we giving in response to his great and awesome giving of himself? The next teaching we looked at was this necessity to be disciplined for holiness and also to be part of disciplining others for holiness. Not the most comfortable Bible study to be a part of, to be honest with you. But as we look at the gospel, we looked at what I called a robust gospel. It was a gospel that looked at the whole of the New Testament and and didn't just say, hey, If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand right now, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, and that's it. And then you can just go back and live however you want to live for the rest of your life. But as we look at the good news of the gospel, yes, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. Yes, um, we're not saved by works, but by the gift of God through faith. But then it's not over. We're saved then for good works. We're saved then towards holiness. And the Holy Spirit who comes into us the moment we become Christians and changes our heart and changes our lives, he will conform us and shape us to be just like Jesus. And so whenever there's non-Jesusness going on inside of us, we get to speak into each other's life and says, man, that's, that's, anti-Christ. <laughs> That's unbiblical. That's counter-gospel. And, and man, here's what the Bible says is, is a picture of Jesus. Here's how we see we're to behave in the light of what Jesus has done for us. Man, repent. Come to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness. Cry out for strength to not yell at your wife like that anymore, you know, or neglect your children like that, or to lie in that manner, whatever it might be. The huge gospel of even inclusive of sanctification and being like Jesus necessitates church discipline. One of the errors in our thinking is that church discipline is just that big excommunication ceremony that happens from the pulpit where someone says, get out of here. You know, um, we never would do that, by the way. We don't say it like that. (laughs) Um, Come on, people. Church discipline is fun to talk about. All right. We forget that really what discipline is, it's not one big giant spanking on the butt and get out of church. What discipline is, is discipling, okay? It's these short teaching times with each other. It's, it's challenging each other in the word of God. It's speaking purity and truth and the revelation of God into each other's life. It's exhorting one another. It's the spur and the side of the horse that gets it moving. And we do it to each other. Hebrews chapter uh, 3 tells us in verse 13 to do it daily, to exhort one another daily. You know? And as we challenge each other and as we spur one another on, we're going to just slowly, slowly, slowly be looking more like Jesus. Be looking more like Jesus. Be looking more like Jesus. And while that's happening, and God help it happen in our church, we won't be having the giant final times that Matthew 18 speaks about or that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about where we have to deliver somebody over to Satan because they won't repent now because we let things go for so long that now they're just full on just 
consumed in sin and they love that sin more than they love Jesus, then we have to be obedient and say, you want Satan? (laughs) You can have him. And we pray that it'll bring you back because we love you, all right? But discipline is discipling. It's teaching each other. It's challenging each other in our self-deception even. And do you see what you're doing? Do you see, do you see how you're, you're justifying this in your heart? Do you see how you're deceiving yourself? This is not good behavior. This is not a good road to go down. And because I love you, I'm speaking this truth into your life. The world would say that discipline is not loving and that discipline is not gracious. But Jesus says, hey, you're my son and you're my daughter. And the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And in Hebrews chapter 12, you know how many times the word son is used when speaking of discipline? You're my son, 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 son. I love you. You're my son. And if I love you and you're my son, then I'm going to give you a little spankings every now and then. I'm going to refine you. I'm going to purify you through discipline that we might be partakers of his holiness, that chapter goes on to say. You know, the next section that we looked at after discipline was the need to be submissive to qualified leaders in our life. But not only that, the privilege of receiving tender care and nurture and nourishment and protection from those very same leaders. All right, so yes, we have this responsibility to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us in the local church, but also there's beautiful care and nurturing and tending that goes along with that for you. And to kind of couple church discipline with the need to have leaders in our life that, that God's put over us. Recently, I was reading in this week, and let's see if you can guess how these leaders that protect us from wolves um, and church disciplines, let's see how this goes together when I read this to you, that this past week, the very Reverend Dr. Jane Shaw, all right, so already you see, okay, um, something's wrong, um, of Grace Cathedral, which is an Episcopal cathedral in California that calls itself an iconic house of prayer for all that is a home of inclusive congregations, basically meaning gay marriage is allowed, okay? Uh, this the very right Reverend Dr. Jane Shaw was interviewing former megachurch pastor and best-selling author Rob Bell on if he thought on uh, what he thought should be um, what what changes should be happening in terms of marriage equality and should the definition of marriage be redefined. And former megachurch pastor and very popular among churches that I've been a part of said this. Yes, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love. Whether it's a man and a woman or a woman and a woman or a man and a man, I think the ship has sailed and I think that the church needs to just, this is the world that we're living in and we need to affirm people wherever they are. Okay, so does anybody's red flag go up there? All right. Uh, In a similar blog, another comment that somebody wrote as someone was challenging for discipline and speaking into people's lives and not affirming people where they are like whatever you're doing it's cool you know i'm for fidelity unless you're an evangelical christian that believes in the bible and that's the authority in your life but i'm for fidelity all right no we speak into people's lives and we say look your route god's route i love you 
Just bump you back this way, okay? Let's come back and sink ourselves to the word of God. Well, in, in that bit of a sinking time, a blog comment was, hey, only God is all powerful. Only God should judge. Religion is a personal relationship between God and that individual. No one has a right to speak to them for God. Don't we each have the power to heal within ourselves, be it through prayer or faith? We get all power from God, but it is still within ourselves that we need to look. The presence of God dwells within each one of us, so why shouldn't we look within ourselves? The problem is the New Testament speaks to it. Proverbs 18 tells us of it, that when we look to ourselves, we're going to do what we want. It's just the way it is. And that's why Christian community is so important, because we challenge each other, we discipline and disciple each other. We exhort one another. We spur one another on. As the early church father Tertullian said, oh, happy is the servant for whose improvement the Lord is earnest, with whom he deems to be angry, whom he does not deceive by dissembling admonition and withholding correction so that the person thinks he doesn't need it. The Lord, man, if he is speaking or correcting you in your life, Thank him. It means he loves you. It means you're his son and your child. And so moving on to that necessity to submit to qualified leadership and to receive care, nurturing, tending from those same leaders. It's all gospel motivated from the good shepherd who was prophesied from Genesis through Malachi. In fact, in Malachi, the prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem is there where it says, um, out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler and he will shepherd my people Israel. So when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 10, he says, I am that shepherd. I will rule. I'm a shepherd that loves the sheep. The sheep hear my voice. They follow me where I go and I lay my life down for my sheep. Well, what about after he laid his life down for his sheep and he ascended into heaven? Now what? Well, God in his awesome, sovereign, gracious plan has ordained men of character, of integrity, of calling, and of function to be under shepherds and to lay their lives down for the sheep as well, tending them, feeding them. The words that are used in the Bible for these leaders are pastor, shepherd, bishop, elder, and overseer. And it all describes the same church leader. It describes the same uh, office or function. A guy that would lay his life down, loving the sheep, tending the sheep, and caring for the sheep. These men are accountable to Jesus, the chief shepherd, on that day. How are you guys doing? Good, I know. Nine weeks, we're almost done, I promise. And so while these men are accountable to God for the way they shepherd and tend you, the scriptures tell us that you are accountable to these men in submitting to their leadership as they are lovingly laying their lives down for you, just like Jesus. These guys are to be many Jesuses on the earth, laying their lives down, sacrificially serving you, taking care of you, loving you, being there for you, uh, leading you beside still waters, preparing tables for you in the presence of you. Those things, right? Uh, in, in, in line with Jesus, you are to be submitting to their godly, humble leadership. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews 13, 17 says, these guys watch out and pray for your souls. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would not be good for you. 
And so obey those who rule over you. Strong language, but the language of Hebrews, people towards the church leaders. In closing, you guys ready for that? Outreach. This was last week. This was just this third purpose of the church. Upreach, inreach, intentionally loving and giving and serving and pointing people to Jesus and being cared for and being loved on by leadership and submitting to one another and considering one another and all that good stuff in the church. Then there's outreach. As the commission says, go, Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 18 and 19, go into all the world. And don't just, you know, make converts, but Jesus says, make disciples, make learners, make people that will be slaves of Jesus and baptize them, have them have that visible outward demonstration that they are slaves of Jesus now. They've, they've died, old Rory's dead, and what he wanted to do, now he's alive for Christ and what Jesus would have him be. We are missionaries now. We are disciples to go out and make uh, disciples because that's the heart of God himself. God himself is a missionary God. He's a missional God. It's part of the divine nature of God himself. And he himself is the model of mission. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, as you have sent me, now I send them. He's a missional God. Now he doesn't send us out in our own strength, but he sends the Holy Spirit to be upon us and to empower us to be witnesses here in Prineville, in Crick County, and in the uttermost parts of the world. And some false views that we have in the church are that only a select group of people or only full-time paid pastors are to be missionaries or witnesses in this town or in this world. And as we looked last week, every one of us who is, are Christians for all time are called to be missionaries out there making disciples we're not only to make disciples of our children or the lovely people in the world, but we're to go to the uttermost and the guttermost to preach the gospel, to preach redemption. You might not be called to a far off country, but you're called nonetheless. You don't have to be a gifted apologeticist. While it's true that you need to be able to give a defense for the faith, be growing in that. Be growing in your knowledge of the truth of who God is. But for those of you that are newer Christians, know this, like, Christ, or like Paul Paul said, all I need to know is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Go out there in the world and tell them about a God that loved the world so much that he sent his own son to be slaughtered, that if anyone would trust in him, they wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. John Stott, I was reading this week, says, no self-centered, self-contained church absorbed in its own parochial affairs can claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, so a spirit-filled church is a missionary church. We have a missionary spirit dwelling in us and upon us. And so may we be available and say, here I am, God, send me. Worship team, come on up. In conclusion to a nine-week series, 10 weeks counting today, the temptation for us is to nod and smile for nine weeks, <laughs> uh-huh, 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 and then walk out the doors and be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, all right? James says that that individual is just a hearer of the world, of the word, and not a doer of the word. He exhorts us to be those that after we hear it, live it out. And he says that the person who does that 
will be blessed in all that he does. But if a man only hears, he's deceiving himself. And so in the next worship song that we're going to do, let's have a time of, and it's going to be a special song, so you're just going to get to sit there and listen. Let's have a time of repentance. Let's have a time of, Lord, I hear what you've had to say these nine weeks. And in this wrap-up session, I hear what you desire your church to be, that we'd be worshipers, that we'd be lovers of each other's, laying our lives down for each other's, and that we'd be going out into the world, telling this good, awesome news. And the Lord has probably already, for a lot of you, said, man, you fall short here, you fall short here, you fall short here. Come to me, look to me. Look to my example and receive my power. But it takes a heart that's willing to say, all right, Lord, it's not my road, it's not my way, it's not my will. It's how you've laid it out for us. In our discipleship groups, we're going through this system program called the Downline Builder. And every week, there's a little box on the teacher's manual that encourages the teacher in applying the word to the student's life. And he says, application entails right belief and right action in response to God's truth. It's a problem if your belief doesn't lead to action. It means you don't really believe it. And it's a problem if you have action, but no belief. It'll eventually fall on its face, powerless and in frustration. And so today, in conclusion of this whole series, we say, Lord, we believe your word. We believe your design for the church. We believe you love it. Now, Lord, help me to love it too. In any one of these areas that you feel you fall short, you're weak in, cry out to Jesus for power and for strength. And I even encourage you to get with somebody here and just say, hey, will you pray for me? These areas... I've been disobedient in. Will you pray and hold me accountable to walk in the truth and to walk in the light? Lord, we are all in when it comes to you and your church and the plan that you have for it. This is intense, Lord. Today was intense, deep theology, wrapping it up, not wanting to be self-motivated by our own selfish strength for the end of selfish glory. That's false religion. But Lord, we would come to you and say, it's your plan. You did it perfectly. We want to be like you. Empower us. And so Lord, we receive that power today. We receive your perfection today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.